Hello, and welcome to the Lend Hoping Nothing podcast. I'm Michael Humphreys, and I'm happy to be talking to you today. This is episode 12, and today I want to talk about uh, investments, and particularly investing for the sake of retirement, um, because this is probably where most of us are going to be most involved in investing in some way. And so um, the first kind of thing is I want to focus on some of the, the facts and information about investing, uh, because it, in the Catholic uh, internet or blogosphere or Twitter sphere, there seems to be a lot of misinformation or um, misunderstanding or confusion about uh, just the mere facts. Uh, after kind of talking about that, I want to kind of start looking into what is the morality of investing, especially for retirement. Um, and so we'll kind of get into what are the type of considerations that we should take into account when we do this and what are some of our options. So uh, first kind of caveat though is that I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not a tax advisor, so take what I have with a grain of salt, uh, do your own research, um, you know, look out for, you know, professionals to kind of help you make these decisions. So kind of getting into just some of the facts of things is that let's consider just what are our options for uh, investing. And so typically the main one that people are going to use is a 401k. And this is a uh, employee-sponsored uh, retirement account or employer-sponsored retirement account. And so typically this is going to allow you to uh, invest a portion of your salary or wages uh, into an account. Uh, and usually this is going to involve uh, an employer match of some kind, usually between like three and five percent. So if you put in a hundred, uh, like three uh, percent of your income and say that's like five hundred dollars, then you, the uh, employer will match that five hundred dollars so that you have a thousand dollars in the account. Um, now, if you put in 6%, so you put in $1,000, uh, they may match only up to that first 3% or that first $500. So typically, though, in these type of accounts, you'll usually only have a small set of options, typically uh, mutual funds um, to invest in. So usually it'll be a set of like money market, bond funds, stock funds, maybe some mix, maybe some age-dependent funds, and, and so forth. But usually it's just a small set of funds that you can invest in. Now, going a step away from the employer, you could open a IRA, which is an individual retirement account. So instead of being sponsored by your employer, you as an individual can open an account with a bank or a brokerage. And typically that's going to allow you to also invest your money. You won't get that employer match, but it will usually open up the sphere of what type of uh, investments you can uh, get into. So uh, not just a small set of mutual funds, but maybe the universe of mutual funds. And then also stocks and bonds and even more dangerous things like options. And so it gives you a much broader uh, spectrum to invest in, but 
it does kind of, you know, you don't get that employer match. So here then we, we need to talk about uh, two types of these type of, of these of these accounts. And they're really based on sort of the tax advantages. So uh, a traditional uh, IRA or 401k is going to allow you to uh, deposit money pre-tax. So you're not counting that money against your, your income and you're not paying income tax now. And so you're allowed to put it into the account and invest it in whatever investments are available to you. And then it's able to grow. But when you withdraw it, when you make that withdrawal, then it starts to count against your income and you pay income tax against it. So there's a certain tax advantage there. And the idea is typically um, in retirement age, your income bracket is going to be lower than in your working age. And so you can end up paying less uh, in income tax by depositing this money um, pre-tax and then paying taxes in retirement. Um, you know, there's, there's some disadvantages there potentially because you have to be careful about how much you take out and because that could potentially increase your income too high and, and so forth. So um, there is typically the idea there is that you'd use this as sort of paying for your sort of regular monthly expenses, so groceries and gas and so forth. Um, whereas on the other hand, there is the Roth account. And what the Roth account is, is that you deposit the money after paying income tax. But after that, you don't pay income tax on it again. So you put the money in, it grows, and then you can withdraw not only the money that you put in, but also that investment growth without it, um, it coming into your income tax. And so then this allows you um, to, to have that not impact your income taxes in retirement. And some of the advantages there might be you may have a big expense in retirement that you need to, to pay for. And so uh, something like, uh, you know, your water heater breaks and you need to get the money to, to repair that or buy a new one. And you can withdraw that money uh, without having it impact your, your taxes. So there's some tax advantages there. Um, however, there's also some limitations and restrictions. So there's certain eligibility requirements. So if you make too much money, you can't you can't deposit, um, and it's kind of graded. So as you as your income is higher, you can't deposit nearly as much. Um, and then there's also some restrictions around when you can withdraw uh, and how much. So there is. Uh, uh, a limit, I think it's around 60, where you can't start withdrawing for retirement without paying not only taxes but penalties. Um, and so there's there's some um, some penalties there if you uh, withdraw too early. And then also um, there is some minimum required distribution levels. 
um, in retirement. So you have to take out so, so much in, in retirement as a minimum. So you can't just leave it in there um, forever or until you die. Um, so yeah, there are some restrictions around that, but there's also the tax advantages as well. So it's a way of kind of encouraging people to uh, invest for retirement. So these tax advantages, but it, it's also uh, those restrictions kind of prevent people from uh, misusing these and not actually saving re for retirement, but trying to get tax advantages to just uh, grow their money for other reasons. So the other option would be kind of like a just opening up a brokerage account. So you uh, open up an account where you just buy and sell uh, securities. Um, and so this is going to be much more freeform, much more open because you don't have all those restrictions and requirements and eligibility uh, that you have in those sort of retirement accounts. But it also means that you kind of lose some of that, um, some of those tax advantages as well. Because typically, buying and selling securities, you're going to pay capital gains tax. Uh, you may be paying taxes on dividends or, or bond payments as well. And, and so there's, there's a little bit more, um, while it has less restrictions, it also has less advantages. So that's another potential option to invest in that. Now, in, you know, saving for retirement generally, I mean, you could, you know, buy CDs or uh, short-term treasuries or, um, you know, even just a savings account. But here I'm kind of trying to focus on discussing sort of investments for retirement. So uh, having discussed the uh, types of accounts that you could open, for retirement, let's kind of talk about what are the sorts of things that you could invest in. And so the main one is going to be, or at least the one that's most popular, most well known, is going to be stocks. And stocks are an ownership claim in a company, which uh, include a, a set of rights and entitlements to the company. So you have a right to vote in the annual meetings and um, make proposals uh, for the company, you have a right to vote for the board of directors. Um, you have certain rights to, uh, if the company needs to be liquidated because of uh, default or um, maybe the company decides to go private, you have certain rights as to how much you receive for that uh, after debts are paid. Um, and then also you have a certain right to dividends if there's being paid and typically those dividends are paid on a per share basis and so that's one way that you can you can also make money not only buying and selling that ownership claim but also off the dividends and i've seen dividends as high as nine percent but you know typically they're lower because companies are not uh, focused merely on uh, paying out the profits they also want to grow the value of the company so um, so that's one potential option. And then we'll get into some of the morality of that later. The other one is going to be bonds, and these are debt obligations. And as I've argued before, bonds are not uh, usurious because they are 
uh, secured by assets rather than people's promises. And so um, ultimately kind of what's going on here is that uh, typically the most simple example is going to be that um, a bond will, a company will issue a bond with a particular what's called face amount associated with it. So say a thousand dollars. And so when they issue that bond, uh, you will pay $1,000 to the company to buy that bond, and then they will agree to pay you what's called a, a coupon, uh, which is just a, a regular payment, whether it's monthly, quarterly, annually, whatever. And so they'll, they'll pay you that over time for a certain number of years, and at the end of that uh, time, you'll receive back uh, that $1,000. So for example, if you buy a $1,000 bond with a 5% coupon paid annually, you will receive for 10 years. Uh, over those 10 years, you will receive $50 each year. And then at the end of that 10th year, you'll receive the $1,000. Now there's also the possibility that you could buy bonds that have already been issued and buy them from other investors. And um, there, there's some other uh, thought that goes into that about you know the value of those bonds and things, but that is another option. Um, but these, these are very different from stocks, obviously. So there's no voting rights. Um, you do have um, certain rights to uh, the company, if it defaults or needs to be liquidated because you're a debt holder, you're going to receive um, the liquidation value sooner because um, the idea is that the owners have to pay off their debts before they can receive the rest of the value. Um, and then there's like senior bonds and junior bonds. The seniors will be paid first before the juniors and, and so forth. So there's a little bit of complication in there, but Basically, you have uh, certain rights to receive these annual payments, uh, which are coming from the company, and then you also have uh, rights to recovery of your principal uh, in the case of default. So uh, very different from stocks, and morally very different, as we'll see. So the next one is going to be mutual funds, and here uh, mutual funds <laughs> represent a whole range of different uh, different investments um, because um, there are stock mutual funds, there's bond mutual funds, there's mixed funds, there's active, passive, and so forth. So the thing to realize, at least as we kind of go into the morality section, is that when you invest in a mutual fund, you're actually investing in that company. The mutual fund is a company that invests in other companies. So you never actually own the underlying securities. So if you invest in a mutual fund that's invested in the S&P 500, you never actually own any of the stocks of those companies. What you own is a share in the mutual fund. And that's a very important distinction and it's something that has been very confused by a lot of people that I've, I've been listening to recently. So you, you have no voting rights uh, in those companies. You may have certain 
uh, rights to the, the mutual fund and you know potentially driving change in the mutual fund, but you don't have rights in the underlying companies. And the same holds true for you know bond funds and so forth. So you can't go up to the, the fund manager and say, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm withdrawing from this. Please give me my stocks. I don't want to be a part of this, this mutual fund anymore. No, you, what you own is a share in the company, and when you withdraw, they'll, they'll give you uh, the, uh, the NAV. It's like the net account value. So it's, it's the actual value you own in that company and they'll pay it out to you. And they may or may not have to sell any securities to, to even give you that value back uh, in cash. So some, some mutual funds though are starting to get the, the mutual fund account holders like voting rights because the fund managers are the ones who actually manage the voting rights and so would be involved in those uh, annual meetings and so forth. So there, there's some things going on there as well, which is kind of interesting. So those are kind of the, the main type of things. There's, there's plenty of more complicated uh, things that you could invest in, um, like options. Uh, there's, there's, that's a whole different area, but those are typically much more risky and, and really require uh, much more sophistication to invest in <laughs> wisely. Um, the the thing I, I would really impress on people is that um, the range of investments is also like very large. Like we'll typically hear about, you know, Apple and Tesla and Google and so forth. But there's tens of thousands of publicly traded companies. And, you know, they're not all, you know, involved in you know, morally illicit things. Um, and not just stocks, but also bonds. So there's a whole range of different different investments out there. Um, and that kind of brings us into sort of this starting to discuss the morality question. And so um, the first thing to consider is that investment is not merely a moral act or not merely a technical act, but a moral act. And this is from John Paul and Benedict and so forth. So we need to not only consider our returns, but also consider um, the morality of what we're doing because these are human acts we're doing. And so they have some sort of morality associated with them. So the first sort of question that we need to ask is, well, should we save for retirement in the first place? And I think it's very clearly yes, because we should be, it's like preparing for any sort of future event and planning for it. So you, you buy extra groceries for the coming week because you're going, you know you're going to need them. You don't go and buy them as you need them. You go and you buy them you know, ahead of time and store them and so forth. Uh, so it's it's really just part of a prudential consideration of what you ought to do uh, and ought to prepare for in the future. I mean, like if you have a big expense that you know is is coming up, so you know you know you're gonna have to replace your your uh, 
roof in in a couple of years, you know, you're going to save up for that. Uh, so the, it seems like saving up for retirement is the same sort of uh, consideration. And so there's a lot of benefits to this as well. So uh, saving up for your retirement, that's going to allow you to be uh, more secure and confident about your future today, which is going to allow you to be more confident and secure and being more generous today. So you don't have to necessarily worry about, well, you know, how am I going to pay for things in the future? So taking care of that is going to allow you to be like, okay, well, I have a plan and I have this set and I have my expenses more or less kind of settled so that you can be uh, generous in the future. And, uh, you know, there, there are ways where you could save for retirement in the wrong way. So you just want to have a lot of money. Um, a lot of people will say, well, I don't want to be a burden on my children in the future. And uh, so they, they want to just be able to, to hire everyone to be, take care of them. So that may not be the best idea either. Um, but the, also the consideration is that saving for retirement could allow you to live closer to your children, to be more involved in their lives uh, rather than you know, not having enough and, and having to potentially rely on them as they're trying to develop their family um, and um, you know, bring all those expenses when they're just trying to get started. So having that retirement fund is not only going to be able to help you pay for your expenses, but also potentially helping them. So it's not something where you can just be generous today, but it's, you know, potentially being generous um, in the future as well. Uh, and sort of mixing that Roth and traditional accounts might be able to help you. So, you know, your your family needs or your your children need to, you know, fix their car because it broke down or... You know, they just had a baby and they're looking, they're trying to figure out how to, to pay the hospital expenses. And so it gives you some more options on how to support yourself and your future family. So it's, there are good way, there are good reasons to save and there's good things that you can do with it. So, um, so yes, retirement, I think, is a good thing to save for. Uh, and saving to cover those expenses and not merely relying on other people to take care of you. Um, now, hopefully you are going to be involved in your children's lives and that's all beautiful and that's something we should work for and saving for retirement could help you uh, get into that place uh, and potentially working that out with your children like beforehand, like, you know, talking with them and being like, you know, you were approaching retirement. We have some money saved up. I want to be closer to you guys. Let's be more involved in each other's lives and, and so forth. So, um, but then we come to some other moral considerations. And so the first thing to consider is that because there is such a wide range of companies to invest in, there's usually not a need to invest in a company that is uh, explicitly, openly, clearly committed to some grave evil. Like, 
given the tens of thousands of companies out there, there is no reason that you have to invest in um, a Google or uh, uh, Microsoft or, or Apple or any of these other companies that might be doing you know, really gravely illicit things. That so so it's not necessary now, given particular circumstances. So for example, your the only thing you have available is like a four hundred one k, for whatever reason. You know maybe you don't have any other options other to other than to invest in a mutual fund that's going to include some of these companies. So what are the type of moral considerations um, that we need to take into account? Um, when thinking about whether we're investing in companies or even indirectly through a mutual fund, um, what are the type of considerations that we should make? So we need to first make use of moral principles and not merely moral slogans. And the two moral principles here that we are going to take into account are uh, legitimate cooperation with evil, and then um, a principle of double effect. So let's let's briefly talk about that. And so this this book I've been reading, uh, Market Complicity and Christian Ethics, uh, written by uh, a Dominican, uh, has been really good. Uh, and he starts off with making this point that we need to consider moral principles first. So. Now, uh, legitimate cooperation of evil. So, uh, you know, sometimes in society we, we cooperate with evil. And so what are the, the, the considerations of when that can happen? So what are the criteria? And here he lays out three criteria. So one, the cooperator. So the person who's cooperating with the person doing the evil Thing. The cooperator's act must not be evil in itself. So like the person who's stealing something, like you can't steal with them. <laughs> um, and so it can't be evil in itself. So, uh, you know, buying and selling stocks, uh, as I've argued, is not evil in itself. Buying and selling bonds, uh, even taking the profits, not evil in itself. So uh, the cooperator, second criteria is the cooperator is motivated by a good intention. So you can't intend the evil act so the thief is stealing something. You, you don't intend his theft. So uh, in our case, we're not intending necessarily what the company, these companies are maybe may doing that is evil. But we're, what we're intending is to be able to prepare for retirement, to uh, save up money for that. And so um, making use of the, this company and the profits that it's generating to achieve that end. And the, the third one is really the, the crux of the consideration. So the cooperator's reason is proportioned to one, the gravity of the perpetrator's wrongdoing, and two, his or her proximity to the wrongdoing. So um, the evil that he's doing 
comes into consideration, but also your proximity to it. And here, typically, we're thinking about proximity in terms of like causal relations. So there, there's a difference um, causally between um, unlocking the door for the thief and then, uh, you know, maybe filling up the, the car uh, of the thief with gas as he goes off to go, you know, steal. So, there, so um, there, there's a difference there. Like the, the first one is more what's called proximate, whereas the other one is more remote. So those are kind of the, the three sort of criteria and that we need to consider. And that last one is also going to be closely related to the, the principle of double effect. Now, the principle of double effect um, is explained here. And so, uh, so the principle of double effect has three um, conditions. So the act considered independently of its evil effect is not wrong in itself. So what you're doing, what you are doing, is not evil in itself. So you buying and selling stocks and so forth, that's not evil in itself. So the agent intends the good and does not intend the evil either as an end or as a means. So here, um, the, the common example is like an ectoptic pregnancy. And there's, how, how do you deal with ectoptic pregnancy? So an ectoptic pregnancy, though, is one in which the fetus has implanted in the fallopian tube. And <clears throat> if it continues on, uh, the, the fetus will eventually grow and it will burst the fallopian tube, which is life-threatening to the mother and also to the child. So the agent, so how do you resolve that is that you actually uh, remove that part of the, the fallopian tube. And so the good you intend is preserving the life of the mother, um, but you're not intending the death of the child. And that, that's a crucial distinction because you are not, what you are not doing is uh, the, the act you're choosing is not to kill a child, it is to save the mother. And then the final thing is the agent has proportionally grave reasons for acting, addressing his relevant obligations, comparing to the consequences, and considering the necessity of the evil, exercising due care to eliminate or mitigate. And so the question there is, is it proportionate? So the evil effect that you do not attend is the death of the child, but that is proportionate to the good of saving the mother's life. And so in that sense, it meets all this criteria. But then th that becomes the question with respect to uh, investing in these companies. And th those considerations depend on which type of security we're involved in. So first of all, with, with mutual funds, um, you know, the goods you're intending is being able to save up for retirement. The, the sort of um, evil is the sort of evils that these companies are involved in. And so the question then becomes, 
to what extent is your investing in this mutual fund going to lead to them doing those evils that you don't intend? And usually uh, with a mutual fund, you're so remote from those companies that there really is almost no causal relationship. And so uh, it's very, very limited there. And so then the question is, you know, is your saving for retirement and preparing for that proportionate to um, that evil that you are in a sort of minimal sense related to? And um, to me, it sounds like it's so remote that it's, it's almost negligible. Um, it's not even clear how um, you buying the mutual fund, especially at the levels we would typically do that at, would be supporting them um, or contributing to them achieving the, those evil ends. Um, because you, you buying into a mutual fund um, probably will not have any impact on the company uh, causing their prices to go up or, or anything. But it does allow you to save for retirement and then be able to achieve those good ends. Um, when we get into stocks, though, it kind of changes a little bit because you have those additional rights um, to make proposals and to be involved. Um, again, though, the difference is that with stocks, your um, your more than likely going to be an extreme minority investor. And so you will have very little power to actually influence the company and actually affect change. And so that causal relationship is, again, very limited. Like you're not going to be uh, supporting that end, but you're also not going to be able to stop it typically. However, because you have those rights, I think you also do have a responsibility. So if you are going to own stocks, you should really be involved in that company. And that's something the bishops have in their own investment guidelines, is that they make this consideration of cooperation with evil and double effect, but they say, no, we need to be involved with these companies and potentially uh, move towards change. And some bishops, do that um, so but if you if you don't have the time or knowledge or sophistication to be able to do that to make proposals or be involved in these meetings then maybe that's something you shouldn't do maybe you shouldn't try to own stocks and in, in companies that is a potential consideration now there are because of the, the vast universe of companies there may be companies where you can buy stocks and they're you know not committed to some sort of grave evil and you can be a minority an extreme minority share owner and take advantage of that and you don't necessarily need to worry about making proposals because they're doing good things anyway so there's there's those type of considerations now with bonds the interesting thing is that if you buy a new issue you are directly supporting that company. That money goes directly to the company. This would be same similar for an IPO, so an initial public offering with stocks. 
typically most people are, you know, most investors, the average person I don't think is going to be involved in, in an IPO. But um, with a bond, you can go out there and some companies will issue bonds as low as $1,000 and you can do that. And that money will go and support the company. And so that is a more direct consideration of like, you causally supporting what they're trying to accomplish. And so then that, that proximity that we have in legitimate cooperation becomes closer because you know, you're helping them actually accomplish that end. Um, and so that becomes a, a bigger issue. Now, you giving them $1,000 or not, it may not have a huge impact, but it is um, closer. And so then whether you have to like um, invest in this particular company to achieve your good ends, you know, it becomes a little bit more, uh, less clear. Now, buying a bond from someone else though, so the money has already gone to the company and you're just buying that bond from someone else, that becomes a little less morally problematic because you're not, you're not contributing to that company, you're not supporting them achieving that goal or anything like that. And so there's, there's that more distant uh, cooperation. In fact, I'm not even sure what sort of cooperation there would be. I've, I've been trying to think about this and I'm just, it's just like owning the bond, uh, not having actually given the money to the company. I'm not sure what sort of support that gives to the company and how it, it causally impacts it. Now, like part of the moral consideration of all this is also potentially the scandal that goes into it. So if people find out that you're investing in, in evil companies, it, it can cause a scandal in, in people starting to think, well, okay, well, it's just these companies are okay and what they're doing is okay. So there is those type of considerations as well. But again, the, the vast array of securities um, allows us to kind of potentially um, consider, you know, companies that are not committed to grave evils. So that requires some research, but it's research uh, well made. Now, let's say at the end of the day, so you are limited to a 401k, your options are extremely limited. So you only have a hand fund of mutual fund accounts that you can invest in. Okay. And so your question then is, well, should I invest in this 401k or not? And you've decided prudentially like, okay, well, I, I can't invest in these companies. And it's important to realize that simply because this is a prudential question doesn't get you off the hook. So just because it's not intrinsically evil doesn't mean you're in the clear. You, you need to make real moral considerations. So if you come to that conclusion where you're like, well, I, you know, golly, um, I don't think I have a good reason to invest in these mutual funds, which are, you know, 
investing in these gravely evil companies. So what do you do? So you can still invest in uh, the 401k for the reason that pretty much every 401k is going to have something called a money market account. And what a money market account or fund, like all it's going to do is keep your money at, um, at a dollar's value. So you might, it might hurt you with inflation. There might also be some stable value funds that are invested in, you know, some really low yield treasuries, for example. And so that you could retain at least your purchasing power over time. Um, and so even there, you can gain the advantage of, you know, that employer match, uh, while also maybe even retaining your, your, your value or, you know, just retaining those dollars. And that, that's a legitimate solution. I think that is a perfectly moral option. Um, I think it's the least ambiguously licit option. Um, so you could at least do that and at least um, get that um, employer match. And so you can, you can at least grow um, those sort of dollars and sort of double your money at least in that way. So um, I think those are some of the, the moral considerations. And I think, so to, to kind of summarize, so at a minimum, you should be able to at least kind of get that 401k match from, from your employer and not be involved with the evil doings of any company. The next thing is um, the wide variety of investments allows you to be involved in companies that are not committed to some grave evil or not wrapped up in some grave evil. So that's always there. The next thing is that if you, if you are wrapped up in those companies, there are legitimate moral considerations of how you could stay there. Uh, and this again is what the bishops have in, in their own guidelines. Um, but you need to take into account, you know, what are your rights and obligations uh, given the sort of things that you have. Um, and I think those are kind of the main considerations, you know, take into account those, those different things. So that, that kind of wraps it up, a little longer episode. Um, you know, thanks for listening. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, or thoughts, you know, leave them below. I'm really interested in this. I'm still trying to work it out. Um, so, yeah, thank you for listening, and have a great day.